I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Could increasing congestion on London's roads be the real cure to all transport woes? Shock as Grenfell firefighters diagnosed with incurable cancers six years on. Right to camp wild under the stars formerly outlawed across England and Wales. And the new legislation mandating verdant urban wetlands to tackle urban flooding. My name is Merlin Fulger. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau and Design District is Finn Harper. Finn is an architecture critic and chief executive of Open City. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Merlin. Great to be here. Census data on housing and car ownership is continuing to inspire heated debate, with this week's guest, Finn, recently writing a comment piece calling on cities to dismantle rather than improve their existing car infrastructure. The article cites London's relatively low levels of car ownership. Only a fifth of Londoners commute by car, and 41% of households have no car at all. The article reveals how a disproportionate amount of land is given over to road infrastructure. In total, 20,000 hectares, or 12.4% of the capital, is taken up by roads. And that's not even including car parks. For reference, roads now make up more than the entire area of Bromley, London's largest borough. If you look out of your window, you'll probably see a road. And despite what appears to be an extensive road network on paper and at a glance, London's roads remain the most congested in the world. This is one reason used to justify the creation of the highly contentious Silvertown Tunnel, the construction of which is currently underway near our office here in Greenwich. But the solution to London's parallel and interrelated problems of congestion, limited space and fatal air pollution, Finn perhaps counterintuitively argues, is actually the reduction of road area, rather than the creation of more road lanes, river crossings or electric vehicle schemes. Drawing on research spanning 60 cities, which shows that the removal of lanes from inner city roads actually reduces traffic by 14%. They argue that making driving more inconvenient will spur the transition to greener transport options from cycling to public transport. So Finn, what's this all about? Why do you think we actually need more congestion in London when a lot of people seem to think the opposite is the solution? Do you just enjoy being a contrarian? You say you're a journalist, so I'm going to have to push you to define what you mean by a lot of people. Actually, most people who study traffic and who understand how traffic moves through cities and the the sort of dynamics of that, have known for decades that building roads does not relieve congestion. In fact, it does 
the exact opposite. Building roads has never relieved congestion. It never will. The Silvertown Tunnel will not reduce congestion. This dynamic has, has been sort of shown in studies again and again and again. I'll give you an example. In the run-up to the Olympic Games in, in London, you know, billions of pounds were spent widening the M25 ring road that, that goes around London, a n- notoriously congested uh, motorway. And uh, they said that the reason they're, they're doing this was to relieve congestion, to make it quicker to travel around the M25. But in fact, uh, a study in 2021, which was led by David Metz, who is the um, former chief scientist of the UK's Department of Transport, found that all the, those additional lanes on the M25 didn't improve journey times at all. It was just as congested as it always had been. The only difference was that 23% more people were driving on it. And this is exactly what we, we, we find everywhere, that the more roads you build, the more people drive. And that is, uh, is, is a phenomenon called induced demand. Uh, and if you take a break from the way that the media often frames the kind of incendiary stories around traffic, actually, this is common sense, right? Induced demand is a kind of familiar dynamic to anybody who thinks about economics, right? If you reduce the price of cigarettes, what's going to happen? More people are going to start smoking, right? As they become smokers, they get hooked on smoking, then the price uh, goes up again as demand goes up for smoking and pretty soon you're back to a situation where cigarettes are just as expensive as they always were but more people are smoking and that basically the same thing happens when you build new roads you induce new demand brings more people out onto the street to drive and congestion returns to the same as it's always been so it, you just can't build your way out of congestion the only way to reduce the number of cars that are on the road reduce the number of people who are choosing to drive is to actually reduce the amount of space that cities dedicate to roads in the first place. It's a very compelling argument. It's certainly interesting because it seems to turn on its head decades, if not centuries, of kind of conventional wisdom around cities and this kind of modernising drive to reduce congestion. So if we think of the early 20th century or the mid-20th century, uh, sort of urban pioneer reformers often talked about you know, congested roads in London full of horses or cars, um, that this was like one of the ills of the metropolis. Uh, and then you had people like Patrick Abercrombie with the Greater London Plan and the London Plan, and it was all about rationalising the city and building modern roads to make it a, a healthy, prosperous space for everyone. Um, so obviously it's a very compelling argument, but it, it turns a lot of people's assumptions on their head, yeah? The, um... Well, no, I, don't, I think it's common sense, actually. I, I know that the media uh, and a lot of, lot of local politicians will continuously say, oh, you know, we need to build roads to relieve congestion. But actually, if you stop and think about that for five seconds, it's pretty obvious that, that that's never going to work. Like, if you're living in a, a flat and someone builds an enormous road next to your flat... Are you more likely to drive or less likely to drive? I think most people would say you're probably more likely to drive. If there's a huge road next to your flat, it's going to make it slightly easier for you to drive. You're more likely to get driving lessons. If you can't drive at all, you're more likely to get the car out of the garage and and, and take it out for a spin uh, if you have a car but don't often drive it. It's kind of obvious that the more roads you build, the more people are incentivized to drive. The bit that maybe is kind of confusing to people is the what you know why not invest in green transport instead right and the point there is that partly 
we have a colossal amount of space dedicated to roads, right? You've got some boroughs that are dedicating, uh, you know, 19%, 20% of all the land in their entire borough to roads. So, for example, in Tower Hamlets, the vast majority of people don't have a car at all. 66% or something of people of households don't have access to a car or van. Of those who do have a car or van, only a very, very small number of people use it regularly for work, commuting to work. It's tiny, less than 10% of people. And yet, the borough has about three times as much land used for roads as it does for housing. Right? That's insane. This is in Tower Hamlets, you know, quite an inner city borough, huge problems with um, housing inequity, huge problems with homelessness, and they're using more land for roads than they are for housing. They can actually double the amount of housing in that borough and still have a smaller proportion of land used for roads than uh, other boroughs like Bromley, which is you know, quite a car-addicted borough as it happens. Um, so there's, a, there's huge potential here to, uh, to sort of completely change the story of London, which, as you say, does have very congested roads, by being more strategic in how we use our land. Uh, and the way you do that is you reduce the amount of space that's handed over to, to roads and to drivers and you massively increase the amount of space that's provided for cyclists, for bus lanes, for trams, for trains and for sustainable transport alternatives. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear how, how would this happen in a place like Tower Hamlets, for example? How would you firstly reduce the space available to cars to a stage that that does reduce congestion overall? And then what would that what would these spaces then be used for? Because yeah, there's this idea that streets just naturally have cars along the edge, right? And then there's also what does a street look like without any cars on it at all? How does this work and how does it work with, with limited local authority budgets? Somewhere like Tower Hamlets, for example. Luckily, there's a lot of research in this already. So um, Paul Lecorat, I might be butchering pronunciation of his surname, is a, a French uh, traffic planner. He's the senior urban planner for the Paris metropolitan region. He's looked at research spanning 60 cities, which shows that when you take an entire lane out of an um, inner city highway, traffic falls by 14% within a few months. And it does so without making congestion worse, right? So the, the street gets no busier for cars, but fewer people are driving along it. So what that means in practice is everywhere there is an opportunity to shrink a bit of road space, you take a little bit of space back. So that might be removing some on-street car parking, that might be turning a, a normal lane into a bus lane, it might be um, adding bike lanes on both sides and taking out a lane to enable that. Actually, London has a, a huge number of inner city kind of four and six lane roads that could be easily um, kind of narrowed a bit to, to claw back some of this land from the road network. That will lead to a drop in uh, car use and it will lead to an uptick in people using sustainable transport alternatives instead. I actually have a little bit of insight to share on this. I mean, I'm in London. I grew up in London. I cycle a lot, but I also own a car and I drive now very, very, very rarely. One of the main reasons why I used it a lot less uh, was when low traffic neighbourhoods were installed where I live. So this is an exact example. You're of, a case in point. I'm a case in point. There are lots of people on the road for various different reasons. Okay, so some of it's economic. It's people driving like a work van or a delivery van or something like that. There's taxi drivers. Um, there are private individual car users as well. Um, 
you know, a, a lot of journeys seem to be people trying to sort of plug in gaps into a system which is already failing, right? So some people drive because there's no public transport option that would get them to the places they need to, which is a failing of public transport. But there's also a failing of um, like social care provision. There's a lot of people are using their cars almost like a charity. Like they're giving lifts to someone to the church. They're giving, they're visiting a relative who might be disabled, but who isn't recognised as having the, the disability and given the right amount of support they need to from the state. There's a lot of reasons why people are forced to use private vehicles, which don't necessarily always relate to transport policy. How do we apply this kind of rational approach to congestion without without also accepting that a lot of people are doing it for, for reasons which aren't purely self-interest. They're like making a sacrifice and they'll continue to make these sacrifices because they have no other choice but to. There are a small number of people who need to use cars. For example, the emergency services. For example, bus drivers. For example, some of the people you've just mentioned. The, best, the thing that is most in those people's interests is um, fewer cars on the road. Because cars are so inefficient that it drags the efficiency of the, the whole transport network down every time someone takes an unnecessary journey by car. It's in the interests of, of people who, who need to drive to be more strategic in how we use our, our road network. So staying on this topic of sort of necessary versus unnecessary journeys. So we're, we're here based in Greenwich and the Blackwall Tunnel is here. And if you ever sort of wander over there and have a look at it, um, it looks like it's full of economic traffic. It's trucks, it's vans, uh, and it is insanely uh, congested uh, and an unpleasant, looks like a very unpleasant drive. I refuse to believe that anyone would do that for pleasure. Like I feel so lucky that I can ride the tube uh, or cycle to work rather than having to, to drive a van full of tools and construction material. Yet because of that the situation where it is necessary for lots of people who potentially live in outer London or in Kent or Essex to drive their, their work vehicles through East London, through the sort of power economic powerhouse of East London, we have schemes like the Silvertown Tunnel that has come along to solve this what is seen as a problem. Um, what would be an alternative method for reducing congestion around Blackwall Tunnel, reducing this congestion caused by what appears to be unfortunately necessary journeys? Okay, so the reason the Blackwall Tunnel is congested is because there is a colossal motorway to the north and the south feeding traffic into it. That is the real reason it's congested, is because in the past, London made a terrible error in building this huge inner city motorway. It was going to be a ring road. It was going to cut through Shoreditch. It was going to cut through um, big parts of Camden. Massive inner city motorway. And thank God they cancelled the project because they realised it was a terrible idea and the last thing London needed was um, an, an inner city ring road motorway. But they didn't cancel it soon enough and a bit of it got built. And that bit of it is in East London and north of the river it's called the A12 and it kind of goes through Bow and Stratford. South of the river it's called the A2 and it, it kind of divides Woolwich from Greenwich. That massive artery incentivizes a colossal number of people to drive, right? It's exactly like the M25 example. You build a huge, huge inner city motorway, what happens? More people start to use the car. And that funnels people up uh, the A2 to the Blackwall Tunnel and it funnels them down the A12 to the, the other end of the Blackwall Tunnel. My solution to the Blackwall Tunnel conundrum is to narrow that motorway. As we've seen from the Paris research, if you get rid of some lanes, at times some of the A2 is like 10 lanes wide. It's like a sort of Los Angeles style freeway 
at points. So it's absolutely no surprise that a road that wide has generated that much traffic. But would that mean people on one side of the Thames estuary only doing their economic activity on that side? We know there's limited options to get across the river east of Tower Bridge. If fewer cars are going through, I guess that just means if, if you're a builder in Kent, you're always going to do your work in South East London. You're not going to go across to the other side. The dis- different decisions that people would make if there wasn't a huge motorway in inner, inner, London, inner, inner East London are like many and varied and some of the distribution centres that Sainsbury's have put just north of the Blackwell Tunnel, they might have a sister distribution centre south of the river. Like There'd be all sorts of knock-on effects that would take place over time. But the most immediate effect would be that local people who tend to unthinkingly drive around for unnecessary journeys, wouldn't do so much. Long term, it might meet things like um, TFL, build some better public transport, or some of those buses that need to get through the Blackwall Tunnel are able to do so more quickly, and so more people take those buses and so on. Um, but the, 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 the most immediate effect would be a drop in unnecessary short journeys by car drivers. Obviously, on this podcast right now, we're discussing this, we're like digesting this, we're picking it apart and we're communicating why this is an appropriate approach. Okay, um, But if we think back to when LTNs were introduced in like the summer of 2020 or 21, you know, there were all kinds of sort of like, uh, um, sensational news stories which were sort of saying about like, Park Lane being reduced to one lane and like insane congestion and various people being quoted and then even resulted where I lived that the LTNs went in and within a month they were kind of ripped out again. It became almost like a culture war. Surely the issue here is communication. Um, how do we overcome this from a communication point of view? Um, how, how are you going to win people around to this? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I should be clear that you can't really solve congestion. You can reduce the number of cars on the road. Congestion is going to be the same. Like, If you build more roads, there'll be more cars on the road and congestion will return to normal. If you decrease uh, the number of roads, then there'll be fewer cars on the road and congestion will return to normal. But like, the question has to be, how do we reduce the number of people driving? How do we make sure there's fewer cars on the road? And we use congestion as a tool to achieve that rather than seeing congestion as, as the aim in itself. It's about reducing the number of cars. It's about reducing the number of emissions, road accidents, deaths on the road. But you're absolutely right that there's a massive amount of incentives uh, built into our kind of culture for people to to use cars um parking space you think of parking spaces like it's it's so cheap to get a parking space um it's like 150 pounds a year yeah, to, to rent a, year, a big chunk to of rent this, exactly the street, i think 130 pounds in some places to rent this you know massive piece of of city relative to the cost it would take to to run a business on the same amount of space or to have a bed to sleep in or to have a school or, or whatever so we we've sort of baked in these actually pretty wild economic incentives for car ownership unraveling some of them is certainly key to this if if car drivers were just exposed to the same economic forces that everyone else is um that would i think overnight reduce uh, the number of people who 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 are choosing to drive unnecessarily Nearly a dozen firefighters who saved lives at the Grenfell disaster nearly six years ago have been diagnosed with terminal cancer, an investigation by The Mirror has revealed. The paper reported that many of the firefighters are only in their 40s and the majority have been diagnosed with rare and incurable digestive cancers and leukaemia, attributed to the high levels of exposure to contaminants they experienced during the unprecedented rescue effort. 
Experts warn this could be the first wave of such cases attributed to the disaster, as many cancers take up to 25 years to become detectable. Many of the 1,300 firefighters who responded at the scene stayed in contaminated PPE for more than 10 hours, and others waited in a contaminant-filled basement for more than six hours. Finn, are you shocked by this report? What do you make of it? The scale of the failings, the litany of failings that have come out of the, the Grenfell inquiry is horrifically shocking. Uh, I would recommend following the journalist Peter Apps. He's just written a book about all of this called Show Me the Bodies. Um, and his Twitter account alone is, is a, a really good source to kind of get to, um, yeah, the just extraordinarily grim series of, of failures. Just some examples that are picked out. There's so many emails warning of issues before all of the cladding was installed on on, on Grenfell. There's suppliers saying, oh, you know, hold on, there, there seems to be a, a gap in this this cladding system. This won't be fireproof. Nothing happens. The design doesn't change. A clear warning is made and the, the project manager in charge of that decision does nothing, doesn't act on it. Um, there's examples of where the designers of the tower's cladding systems write in emails that there is, quote, no point in fire stopping as we know the ACM, which is the aluminium cladding, will be gone rather quickly in a fire. So like right from the get-go, loads of the people involved in this project knew that this was an incredibly risky project that would be a total disaster in a fire. Uh, and yet it went ahead anyway, and sure enough, we all know what happened. So to some extent, um, this is deeply shocking and we're, uh, should kind of cut to the very core of like the British construction uh, industry and to the regulatory bodies around it. But on this, the specific question of, of this story and firefighters who have now been diagnosed with terminal cancer following their efforts to save people from the tower. In a sense, I'm not shocked, actually, because we know that the fire brigade has been cut to pieces over the last few years. Since 2010, 20% of uh, firefighters have left left the service due, due to cuts. And The Guardian reported last year that just since 2016... £140 million of funding has been cut from the fire service. That's a cut of 14%. And some individual fire departments have had even bigger cuts. Um, So some cut by 40%, losing as much as £22 million from their annual budgets. And we've known that's been happening. We as a society have continued to vote for this government that has been boasting about how uh, much they've been cutting from public spending. And public spending is the fire service. That is that is a huge chunk of our emergency services. Uh, and so in that sense, I'm, I'm not particularly surprised that it's firefighters who are now being diagnosed with these horrible illnesses. But no wonder, right? They've been cut to pieces. They don't have enough personnel. They don't have the, the money to spend on the right equipment. It must be really difficult to be uh, in the fire brigade and continue to, to work in these conditions. And that's the thing, a story like this, it comes at us in a mediascape through the lens of Grenfell, which is, we think because Grenfell was such a big event that therefore the firefighters, you know, it, they, they would be acting in exceptional circumstances, therefore they wouldn't have the right PPE, therefore they'd be extraordinarily at risk. But really they should have always had the right equipment. There's no reason why they should have been there and not been fully safe, or at least as safe as they were in any other situation. Uh, and that's because of those cuts that had happened. This came out this week that actually um, Sangoban, which is the company that produced the Celatex RS5000, which is the, like the insulation that was 
that went into those cladding panels, um, they knew that if this stuff got set on fire, that it would release toxic fumes uh, at least 18 months before the Grenfell fire happened. They knew because they'd been doing research on it. You know, they, 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 they'd been studying what happens when you burn this insulation material and they found that uh, it reduced all sorts of kind of crazy chemicals. Uh, it's made from a plastic called polycyrate, which re- releases kind of a choking smoke that includes cyanide, a poison, and carbon monoxide, another poison, when it was burning. So not only are the, the fire brigade not being given the resources that they need to keep their, their staff safe in these, these really kind of horrendous, challenging situations, we are failing to regulate the construction sector well enough to the point that companies can be fully aware that they're producing products that release toxic poisons when burned and those uh, are getting installed on residential buildings. Um, one fire brigade's union official um, said to the Mirror, quote, due to this inaction by the government of fire bosses, the fire brigade's union is commissioning further research to help us demand proper protection and support for our members who attended Grenfell and for firefighters all over the UK. Um, there's a lot of industrial uh, action going on at the moment. Uh, could we see more strikes by firefighters in 2023 uh, if issues like this aren't resolved? I think that the Fire Brigade Union is currently balloting members over whether to strike. It'll be the first um, national strike of the Fire Brigade since 2003. And... To be honest, you know, solidarity to them. Like it's it's very clear to me that firefighters deserve outstanding pay and conditions. They ought to be able to retire early with a, a whopping big pension because they are public sector heroes who go and save us when catastrophes happen. Uh, even when they aren't having to inhale toxic fumes from cladding panels, we know that any firefighter's mortality rate from cancers is, is 1.6 times higher than the general population. We know that they're at greater risk of, of, of heart attacks and strokes. That is a, uh, an occupational hazard with, that comes with the job. If we're going to ask men and women to put themselves in this danger and, and take on those kind of life-shortening threats, we really ought to be paying them properly and making sure their conditions are, well, are good. So uh, I'm sure they will be balloting on, on strike action and I hope they get the conditions improvements that they, they deserve. The right to wild camp anywhere in England and Wales has been formally outlawed after a landmark court case was won by a millionaire landowner in Dartmoor, an area that was until now considered the last bastion of the right to roam. The legal battle, which challenged the historic Dartmoor Commons Act, was won by hedge fund manager Alexander Darwall, owner of the 4,000-acre Blanchford estate. This means wild camping without the landowner's permission is now explicitly outlawed everywhere except Scotland which has had a national right to roam since 2003, despite nearly 60% of its land being under private ownership. Campaigners, nature lovers and environmentalists alike have slammed the latest ruling, arguing that we should be expanding public access to nature rather than limiting it further. One Dartmoor guide who spoke to The Guardian said, quote, We're seeing a real erosion of rights and access to nature. Being a regular walker, I see a lot of paths are blocked, signs are moved, ancient paths that are on the OS maps uh, that should be there are no longer there. Uh, She added, the decision has just highlighted the divisions in our society, the haves and the have-nots. How much does one person need? Finn, Londoners have no free camping opportunities on their doorstep. Wild camping is not really something that can happen around London. Um, 
why should so much attention be being paid to what's happening far away in this very kind of distant place, uh, which is potentially quite inaccessible for a lot of people unless they've they've got a, a car or they've got the money to spend on train tickets to get down there um, to carry their bag for a long distance and then go and camp out? It's really important not to get drawn into this kind of right wing culture war that pits Londoners against other people in the UK. Um, you know, we've talked about this on this show before that. Ultimately, if you're an ordinary person in Hackney, you have more in common with ordinary people in Liverpool or anywhere else or Devon or Dartmoor or, or wherever than you do with the kind of millionaires like this this property tycoon or the millionaires who are in the cabinet that he's donating to, by the way. And so this is a kind of case in point. We have this kind of multimillionaire property tycoon donor to major right wing political parties using his influence to strip away opportunities and rights from ordinary people. It's exactly the same dynamic as we get in London when um, you know maybe a, a, a bad property development company manages to get permission to knock down a council estate and displaces a whole load of Londoners or prices them out of the area. It's the same fundamental problem of extremely wealthy, powerful people shitting on the rest of us by using, uh, in this case, the kind of court system and, and legal arguments, but it, it could be through undue influence in, on through political donations and sort of hard power of cash as well. Uh, so there's absolutely every reason for, for Londoners to feel like this is, is their fight as well as the, the fight of more local people. It's a real kick, actually, for younger people. A lot of, Lond- a lot of young Londoners used to wild camp in, in Dartmoor for their Duke of Edinburgh Awards. So you'd get on a coach from your school somewhere in London and you'd drive over there and you'd do some wild camping and that was the only place in England that you could do it and it was reachable by coach and now they can't do that or they won't be able to do that unless this this court judgment is 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 overturned so this is a this is a, a loss for ordinary people everywhere and the vast majority of Londoners are ordinary people we're not millionaires um, and this is in particular a loss for for young Londoners who might have been able to use Dartmoor as, a, as an opportunity to get access to nature, which, you know, they're, they're often denied as inner city young people. Speaking from experience, certainly growing up without a car, without much money, camping was basically the num- the only thing we did for holidays. Uh, and certainly you know, there were major obstacles to that, um, trying to do that on public transport, uh, like for families, for example, it's, it's not particularly easy. Certainly, I've, I've done a fair bit of wild camping in, in Scotland, in England. Um, it's usually more intrepid. Uh, you need to you know, have maps. You need some intelligence. You need to think out your traveling quite carefully. You need to be able to carry everything that you need. Uh, in Scotland, for instance, you're not allowed to wild camp next to some of the locks, which is actually a much more family-friendly environment to go wild camp. But it's fine to know wild camp halfway up a mountain. Well, you know, that's immediately excluding a whole bunch of people. Um, is the is the the real issue here about uh, there not being enough facilities for people? I think the real issue is about who owns England or who owns Britain. You know, I'd, I'd definitely recommend Guy Shrubsoul's book, Who Owns England, on this because it turns out that the vast majority of our country is inaccessible to all of us. So, you know, we can have conversations about what kind of camping is the most accessible to families or whatever, but actually the the fundamental issue is do we, the people, have access to land in our country? People talk about Wales as the first colony of the British Empire, but in a way England is, right? Because 
over, over the last sort of 500 years, huge amounts of England have been walled off, fenced off and taken from common people, ordinary people and gifted to extremely wealthy aristocrats. And many of those parts of, uh, of land are still owned by the, those kind of super rich. So leading up to the 20th century, Parliament passed 5,200 enclosure acts that gave away 6.8 million acres of England to aristocrats, right? Now that land is all private land, and we call it private. We, we say, oh, you know, that belongs to the Duke of whatever or the Duchy of whatever. No, that's our land that was taken from us by force with the help of the military of the day. And this story, this what seems like a small story of a um, uh, of Dartmoor wild camping, is all part of that same journey that gradually England has been taken from the English and given to a wealthy minority uh, of, of people. Some of them English aristocrats, some of them not English aristocrats. But the, the common theme is that they're multi-millionaire tycoons rather than ordinary people. And so I think the, the solution, you know, yeah, of course, you know, it'd be great to have some more camping facilities, but really we need to take back some of that land um, into uh, kind of common ownership. Sustainable drainage systems resembling urban wetlands will become mandatory for new developments under new proposals put forward by the government this week. The long-fought-for decision to require nature-based flood protection in all new developments was welcomed by the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust, who have been campaigning for a decade to see the system, which is known as SUDS, Sustainable Urban Drainage Systems, implemented in UK legislation. Urban wetlands, which include rain gardens and ponds, capture and slow rainwater, preventing flooding at the same time as creating pockets of biodiversity. Research suggests this could save £3 billion in reduced flood damages and relieve pressure on traditional drainage and sewer systems. Of course, also means more planting and natural surfaces and busy urban areas, which could help us keep cool in the summer and also stay happy. Uh, a great example of a recent Suds installation can be seen in the newly pedestrianised Aldwych. Um, so, Finn, what is this all about? Uh, could you describe what a Sud is? Because obviously this name isn't necessarily going to mean a lot to everybody. This is a genuinely good news story, I think, uh, or at least it will be if it's implemented properly. Um, so a lot of cities are like hard surfaces, right? Pavements roads car parks and when rain falls on those hard surfaces it doesn't have anywhere to go and so we build drains and the water gets channeled into the drain and and you know flushed away into the river or whatever um that's sort of okay but then what happens if there's more rain than that drain system can handle you get flooding right and flooding as we've seen is it going to be an increasing problem as the climate gets wetter gets windier gets sort of scarier um, and so a really clever alternative is to say okay well you know what if we found some ways of like cutting some holes into all that hard surface what if we like made some punctures into that uh, just down into the clay or down into the earth uh, then the water rather than flowing into the drain and overwhelming the system could flow into the earth and get sort of soak away soak away in, into the ground and that's essentially what a suds system is it's a way of channeling water not into a pipe but into the ground and the, the ways that you you do that are kind of you know there's, there's various ways sometimes you have quite a small pocket where it can drain into the ground but then you have quite a large tank 
which can add extra capacity and mean that it can soak away quite slowly. Uh, there's a really good scheme in um, in Cambridge. Stanton Williams designed this kind of big new bit of housing on the edge of Cambridge where they have a, a kind of mini wetland that runs right through the middle of this whole housing estate uh, and ends in a kind of little swampy lake, the ornamental swampy lake. And so the water from the whole housing estate gets collected, channeled through these kind of fountains and, and waterways and ends up in this lake. So if there is a kind of heavy rainfall, um, it all soaks away there. So there's various ways to achieve it. But ultimately, this this is about kind of cutting little holes in our really hard landscape of London to allow water to soak away into the earth. And then if you're going to cut a hole, you can plant it with trees, you can put little wetlands in, you can grow reeds and flowers. And as soon as you have access to the earth again once you've cut through a piece of road or piece of pavement there's all sorts of kind of greening and biodiversity benefits that you can squeeze into the sud system as well yeah and of course if we can get rid of cars that same rain won't be full of contaminants as well um but just thinking i mean maybe i'm being reductive but if we think of it as a kind of street furniture okay look recently in london you had those green cabby booths you know the cabins for taxi drivers they were listed right okay you got those sometimes you you go along and you see these this amazing granite cattle trough next to a road and everyone's like oh yeah those were the like metropolitan cattle trough association you know they're all listed as well i mean how do we end up in a situation where suds become part of our culture right could we imagine a listed sud 50 years 100 years from now on aldwich or something as it being like something that's really celebrated and understood or am am i coming at it from the wrong no that's a really interesting point and you're absolutely right that these things have to become kind of culturally cherished as well as technically cherished because uh, they are they're not complicated but you can get them wrong right and there's examples of where people have have just like put it in a little pocket park and they think that's a sud but actually it doesn't go down deep enough to connect to the ground or or like it doesn't have that tank that holds the water in case of heavy rainfall or it doesn't channel water from the whole street it just channels water from the immediate area and, so and to know that you need to look at the planning documents yeah exactly like ask the builders so they are quite kind of they're delightfully nerdy actually in the same way that post boxes or, or, or telephone but you know gilbert scott telephone boxes are nerdy and i think there there could be a real opportunity there to to kind of make them part of kind of london's urban heritage but the way to do that is good design, you know, to, to not bodge it in at the last minute, to, but actually uh, employ great designers to uh, come up with kind of clever and, and sexy ways of doing these that are not just kind of technical solutions, but are very expressive, are recognisable, and that bring kind of joy and life to the street as well as helping alleviate flood risks. And so um, obviously what's interesting about this is it's a very decentralised solution. The idea is that if every new development has SARDs, that will once scaled up to a massive level effectively will reduce the impact of flooding but we also live in a time of like major infrastructure projects you know, we just had crossrail hs2 is under construction also in london we've got the 4.2 billion pound thames tideway schemes it's like a giant sewer underneath the thames designed to do this exact thing basically protect the existing sewage system from floodwaters get all of that extra rain and sewage out of the city uh, in an efficient way so it doesn't back up onto our streets and into our homes now there's a lot of recognition that we do we do need new infrastructure, but uh, there's also this kind of feeling of like maybe we need to maybe we shouldn't be thinking about these heavy engineering solutions to everything. Maybe in London we could just say outlaw paving over your front and back garden, and that might actually save us from having to build a whole tideway tunnel in the first place. 
Yeah, well, ev- you know, everything is connected. And uh, one of the reasons that we need to claw back more control over land across the whole country is because we urgently need to rewild and reforest big chunks of Britain, partly in order to mitigate carbon emissions, but also to soak up all this extra rainwater that we're going to get um, through climate change. And actually, it turns out if you if you reforest upstream of the Thames, uh, you reintroduce beavers and dams and, and you're able to soak up more water upstream, that reduces the flooding risk in London. So we do need to have a, a, quite a kind of a sophisticated, big picture view of uh, of all of these issues and how they interrelate. Because, you know, it's not just the case that building a massive tunnel... <laughs> in the middle of London is is the only or the best solution. Actually, we need to sort of be doing everything. So, you know, I'm, I'm not against huge infrastructure projects, but I also think we need a massive rollout of these kind of more forensic opportunities. Everywhere, not just new developments, everywhere there's an opportunity to put in a, a SUD should be taken, uh, including existing housing estates, including existing roads. If we clawed back some of the land from from the road network, we could we could roll out a, a huge network of sustainable urban drainage systems. And then we also need to be reforesting. And, and to do that, we probably need more control over private land ownership in this country. We're on to the culture section. So first up on the calendar of uh, London highlights in the built environment cultural space is Open Cities Pub Pub Quiz. Um, that's a pub quiz all about the architecture of pubs. It's happening on Thursday, 2nd of February, between 7 and 9.30pm at the Ivy House in South East London, Nunhead, community-owned venue. Yeah, I've heard there's some um, there's some cool teams emerging. Um, you know, various sort of interesting architectural historians fancy their chances uh, and are forming teams. I've actually made a brass mobile as one of the prizes, but we also have signed copies of all of our books, including Jonathan Nunn's uh, London Feeds Itself book. It's completely sold out. It's the only way to get a copy. The quiz is designed by David Knight and Christina Montero, who edited our pub's book that came out last year. And there's guest rounds from um, some sort of celebrity guest quiz masters. Uh, So I think it'll be a lot of fun. The Ivy House is a really nice community-owned venue, if you've not been, this is a good opportunity to come and uh, all the money that we raise will be used for our year-round educational programmes at Open City. Yeah, it's nice to have a really big um, social event in February. Um, talking about big social events, uh, the Architecture Foundation is doing a um, a major talk, Architecture on Stage talk, about trees. Certainly a topic close to our hearts. It will look at the cultural and environmental role of trees in our cities, led by a series of architects, environmentalists, artists and activists. Um, A really great bunch of speakers. Um, And um, it's going to be at 7pm on Wednesday, 25th of January in the Barbican Hall. Yeah, I think in the concert hall. Very big. I mean, I'm going to this. I think it's going to be great. It's the first event that's come out of the AF's new kind of fellowship programme. Uh, a lady called Judith, who's one of the directors of East Architecture, ha- has put it together. She's a bit of a genius, but I think the lineup she's put together is outstanding. And what I really like about it is it sort of does what you were just talking about in that it's as interested in the cultural and artistic value of trees and cities as it is in their kind of ecological 
performance or climate mitigation performance. So it'll be like a, a whole, I'm hoping it's going to be a sort of rapid fire series of micro lectures. And by the end of it, my brain will be just completely buzzing with good ideas about why trees are cool and, and how we can have more of them in London and other cities. Yeah, certainly an essential event for anyone, any London listener. And, um, and also what's always great about this, the discussion always continues afterwards in the pub. So uh, next up is the London Society's 2023 Bannister Fletcher Lecture. It's happening on Monday, the 13th of February at the RIBA's Portland Place headquarters and the lecture will be given by Georgia Gold who's a councillor and leader of Camden Council also chair of the London Councils. Um, so Georgia's earned a formidable reputation as an innovator in local government and an original thinker about the future of the capital. Uh, speaking earlier this year Georgia called for a new era of municipal imagination sounds brilliant across the city to transform and humanise the delivery of services amid recurring crises. She says we need to draw lessons learned during the pandemic and have a much more humanistic approach to public service okay so um yeah i mean the, the london society have been around for ages they they try to instigate kind of public debate about the future of london they have a particular interest in the built environment but it's kind of broader than than just kind of architecture um it's really cool that they've got georgia she's she's clearly a rising star in politics currently leader of Camp, camden some people saying future prime minister i don't know but uh, i'm really interested to see what she has to say. I think she's someone who is very well respected and followed within the kind of local government world, but probably doesn't have that big of a public profile yet. And so this event, I imagine, is, is like the start of her uh, campaign <laughs> to uh, become more of a, a, a public figure in politics. And I'll be really interested to see what she says and how we can kind of challenge her in the Q&A afterwards. Fantastic, Finn. It's been a great f- pleasure to feature you on London. Uh, where should listeners go to stay up to speed on your writing? Uh, are there social media handles they should follow? Yeah, I'm on Finn Harper, P-H-I-N-H-A-R-P-E-R on, on most most channels but also you should get on the open city newsletter if you're not opencity.org.uk slash newsletter because that's where we post all of our upcoming events and blog posts and um, kind of opportunities to get involved and stuff fantastic thank you you've been listening to the London, a show from open city rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in london If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag London, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.